Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Hello everyone, welcome to Sabbath School Gems. This is Lesson 7 for Sabbath, August 14, 2021, titled Rest, Relationships, and Healing from the Quarterly Resting Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can meet together to study these lessons that you've, these stories that you've preserved for so many thousands of years. And I just pray as we open up your word that you will speak to us, that the Holy Spirit will come and fill us with the wisdom and the knowledge that you want us to have at this time in our history. And we thank you again for this opportunity to meet together to worship you and to learn about your ways. Amen. Lesson number seven focuses on Joseph's story, starting with his brothers in Egypt. His brothers going to Egypt and buying grain and the confrontation that occurs between Joseph and his brothers. To give some background to the story, I'd like to very briefly visit Genesis 34 where we see another story. This is basically the story of Dinah, daughter of Leah, traveling in the land. She travels to a group of people and she is basically grabbed by Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, and raped. The man decides that he wants to marry Dinah and sends a message to Jacob saying, please get me this young woman as my wife. The story goes on describing how the sons of Jacob came in from the field, were very grieved, very angry, and they just deal very deceitfully. They tell the Shechemites that they must be circumcised before they would even consider such a marriage. And when the men are recovering from the procedure, two of them, Simon and Levi, go to the city and they kill everyone in the city. They justify this saying, shall they be allowed to treat our sister as a harlot? So consider that as the background of the character of these brothers of Joseph. Joseph, of course, has had no information, no experience, no knowledge of anything that happened to his brothers after he's turned over to slavery. And he himself has gone through quite a few experiences over a number of years. And here is his brothers before him. As the lesson points out, he's definitely worried about a lot of things. He's worried about his father. He's also noticing that Benjamin is no, not there in front of him either. Only the other brothers. Could something have happened to Benjamin? So Joseph decides to test his brothers. So the big issue, of course, is much injustice has occurred. We don't know, unless we know the rest of the story, that his brothers have very different characters now. They have very changed characters. 
we're not told exactly what happened between these two time frames, what changed their character, but we're given this from the perspective of Joseph. What should Joseph do when he does not trust his brothers? So my question to you is, is Joseph behaving in a Christ-like way towards his brothers by giving them all these tests, by quizzing them, treating them the way he does? What do you think? I think so. I think that he, he is because if you go back to the story of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the Lord sent his angels in there to inquire if the report was true. And even in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't just say, okay, that's it. You know, he went there and he questioned. He said, you know, he started questioning, why are you hiding? And he told you you were naked. And so that, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize it until you said it um, this way, but you're right. Benjamin wasn't there. And I bet you anything, Joseph was panicked. What did they do to my younger brother? I mean, that must have really taken him. Why is he not here? Is, you know, because it could have gone either way. You know, he didn't know what happened to his brother. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the web method of inquiry is a way that God would have appreciated. And definitely, I mean, he did throw them in prison. He threw them all in prison for three days. And he did take Simeon and throw him in prison for an entire year and subjected them to test after test after test. Yeah, well, that's fair. That's true. And, of course, he did, we do know the end of the story. We're not ignorant of the story, I'm sure. Is No, he does come down to them and tell once he knows he can trust them he does confront them but let's go through the story bit by bit first okay so first of all again his brothers come before him this is in again Genesis 42 and they ask for grain first thing that Joseph says is, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to spy out the land for presumably some foreign power. And I like the response of the brothers. They say, we are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servant are not spies. So Joseph knows these are very honest men, right? They are very truthful, very honest, very good people. Of course, his only experience has been opposite with them. And without any other experience all these years, that's probably the experience that still is reverberating through his mind is still dwelling on that issue of his betrayal for who knows how long, who knows how much time. Interestingly enough, again, as we're not really given a story or a description of how their characters have changed, we're not really given much about Joseph either. What, at what point did Joseph forgive his brothers? At what point did Joseph 
say, I'm not going to hold this against them. I'm not going to release this and see, keep this in my character and my personality. What do you think? Do you think Joseph had forgiven them years back? Do you think Joseph forgave them after he tested them? Or what point do you think Joseph did forgive them? I think Joseph forget. well, I don't know what you mean by forgive, but I think when Joseph saw how much God had blessed him and he saw how he had taken him from that life and he had named his first son Manasseh, I think that's when he kind of put all that behind him. He just, he just put it all behind him. He said, you know, that's just all water under the bridge. It's gone. And, you know, I have, a new life now and then he saw how fruitful he was and how God really did bless him so when he had a second son Ephraim um, that was he named him fruit and just to see the fruitfulness of how God had really blessed him so I think before he had his you know meal he had he had he had put everything behind him and, and in, in a sense forgiven them I don't think he was fully cleared them, but he forgave them as far as he was concerned. He didn't have to carry any animosity or anything with him. He wasn't going to take any of that because God had blessed him, and he just wanted to revel in what God had blessed him with. Had a tumor in there or something. I do like that term. I like that reference spot because, again, you're right. Let's, let's separate it without any contact with his brothers. There's definitely no reconciliation. There's no, nothing that could be done at all in Joseph's mind to rebuild trust of his brothers. There's definitely no point where he can say, I know my brothers have changed because again, he'd not seen them and decided, yes, okay, I can now trust you fully. There's no basis for that trust. There's no knowledge of anything about them whatsoever until this point. So he obviously does not trust them. He obviously spends quite a lot of time testing their character and figuring out if he can indeed trust them and to see if they actually have different characters. But I think it's important to describe forgiveness as a release from the victim side, as, a, as in, I am no longer holding this. I'm no longer keeping this and seizing this and stressing about this. So again, going through the story, Joseph runs his brothers through a number of tests. He calls them spies, puts them in prison for a short time, holds Simeon back, bounds him up, puts him in prison and sends them back and then gives each man its, his money back, making it look like they possibly have stolen money from the Egyptians and ran off with both the money and the grain and gave them a strong acknowledgement saying, unless you bring your other brother back, then I'll trust you. But if you don't, you will die. So a question I also have here, 
we don't know this. This is pure speculation. This is entirely off screen. But are his brothers really transformed at this point? Are they born again characters? Are they honest, good men? Or are they just more mature? Do you think that this at this point in the story, they were actually completely new people, complete people that would actually love and care for their father, love and care for their younger brother? Or is this something that occurs during the story? So, you know, I think that, you know, they describe themselves as honest men. But if you think about it from Joseph's perspective, were they honest? Because if they were honest, they would have said to their dad, yeah, we sold him into slavery. Don't you think that Jacob would have gone out looking for him and found him somewhere? You know, he, he would have he would have been searching for him. So, you know, Joseph doesn't know that they're honest men. They say that they're honest men. So from that perspective, you could say, okay, maybe they really were changed by then. But the fact that he asked them to bring their younger son, you know, their, their younger brother there, I think that was significant because, you know, they say they're honest, but you know, he needs to lay eyes on his younger brother to actually see if it's true or not. I think that was part of the test. So I think that, yes, they were probably changed by that point, but I don't think that Joseph really knew or believed them at that by then. Do the story yeah. a little oh, go ahead. Well, you said something about them being changed. I don't think they need to have this great transformation. I think, I mean, because even when, when Jacob or Israel is, is giving their final kind of his, his final pronounced blessings or curses, <laughs> some of them ended up being curses um, on his sons. He, you know, kind of noticed, no, noted the, the violence and stuff of Simeon and, and Levi in particular, and not all the sons got these glowing blessings, I guess. So I don't know if they were necessarily like, you know, some scrub clean lily white people, but I think that in regards to this incident that they did, I think they had, I mean, based on the story later that we see, we can see how I think they saw the toll that it took on their father. And I think they, they lived with that guilt and maybe had a change of heart sometime even before this encounter. This encounter kind of brought it all to a head. It's, it's, but that doesn't mean that they weren't living every time thinking, are we going to have to pay back for what we did or, you know, what what is going to happen to us? Um, is there going to be some repercussion to this other than seeing our father suffer, which I think was, was grievous enough, but... Um, so I don't think it had to be a complete transformation, but I think in this regard, they had come to some kind of um, regret, I guess, at this point. Another question a story comes out, brings out, and I want to deal with this a little out of order, is at the very end of the story, when Jacob has passed away, the brothers say to themselves, Perhaps Joseph will hate us. Maybe he'll actually repay us for all the evil. 
they're still fearful and they send messages to Joseph begging them to please forgive your brothers for their sins, for the evil they did. And again, years and years later after this, they're still fearful. They're still dwelling on this fear and this pain and this suffering. And this really brings an interesting question is victims of sin, people who have suffered from things unjustly have a need to forgive the those who do evil against them. But what about the other way around? What about the perpetrators of sin, people who hurt others? How do they release this fear, this worry, this damage to their characters? I don't know which one's harder. I mean, both of them require a, a certain amount of faith and trust in God. Otherwise, you know, you can't let go of that kind of hurt. You can't trust that God has a way of fixing it. But I think they're both challenging. They're definitely both challenging. And that's my third question is, how does this compare to our own, our own experiences? We've all done things we regret. We've all sinned. We've all done things against God. How do we, as Christians, deal with this own issue? We have a problem that we read about how God is good, but how do we learn to trust God? How do we learn to give up the pain and the discomfort from our own mistakes and learn to release the past, release the problems we've caused, and live life as real Christians. Live life as those brothers said, we are honest men. Don't we have the same issues? Don't we have the same problems from both these perspectives? Anyway. Okay, so back to the story. I think it's a challenge and I think it comes down to each individual person and who they are and what their growth is for God. Because truly in both situations, whether you're the victim or the perpetrator, you have to trust God is gonna be able to fix the problem. Otherwise you could be crushed by you know, what's been done to you or you could be crushed by the guilt of having done something that bad. Because sin kills. I mean, the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. And, you know, just like if you think evil against your brother, that's like committing murder. You know, if you did something and you have no outlet for it and you just have that guilt, it will crush you until it, it kills you. Like, you know, all of our sins and separation from God, so Christ on the cross. So it's the start of it. And so without some type of resolution, without some type of hope or faith in God, um, I don't I don't know how people without God would deal with that. That would be a interesting thing to look at. Not true. No, it always does seem to come down to reestablishing trust. 
how do you get to a state of trustful innocence where you can trust God, trust your neighbors, trust your family, especially after any type of sins, any type of pain and problems caused by sin? Well, you know, there's, there's the, uh, you know, they say the four R's of forgiveness or five R's or whatever. They, it's not just a matter of like, okay, yeah, I forgive them. But they're, I mean, when it comes to personal relationships here, because I think, well, I think with God, it's kind of similar too. But I think there's certain things that you need to do to show that you're really repentant and, and, and I guess worthy of forgiveness, even though a lot of times you're never really truly worthy. Like you can't put the feathers back in the pillow. You can't undo the damage a lot of times. So, um, but I think there's some things that you look for in people and God probably looks for those things too. You know, did, did we, do we recognize our sin and do we take responsibility for it? Do we have regret and remorse for it? And are we turning from it and, you know, resolving to change, I guess you could say, um, are we trying to repair anything that we can repair? Most of it we can't repair. Those things are so grievous. Um, and then the last one is repeat or no repeat. You know, do we, are we going to repeat the same thing? And this, this one I think is the real one that we get into because if we sin and then we sin again, the question is, did, did, did and we sin, we, we sin and we repent and we ask for forgiveness from God. And then we go and do the same thing again. You have to wonder, did, did we really repent? You know, or did did we just want to kind of get out of the consequences of it and, and, and clear our, our conscience? But did we really feel that remorse? Did we really feel responsibility, meaning it's in our control? Did we really feel remorse? Because if we did, we shouldn't repeat. We, sh we shouldn't ever do it again. So. True. And I think we get into some more of those examples in the story too. Yep. Well, that's definitely a growth issue is what you're talking about. You know, some people repeat sins because they practice that behavior. So, you know, so much throughout their life that they have to learn how to do things a different way. You know, one thing that I don't know that the lesson study brought out, but just realizing that there's two sides to this issue. Um, there were two parties, I should say, two parties to this issue. Having forgiveness and growing past it, you know, you have to realize there could be, you know, you could get over if somebody did something bad to you if you really feel that they're repentant. But really, you have no control over another person. So I think that the recovery of the person who's had the wrong done to them needs to be independent of what the other person is doing. In other words, the situation affects 
each person 100%. And the recovery or the moving forward has to be that own individual's responsibility with God. Yeah, I think what you're saying is, I mean, there's when when forgiveness is involved, there's two parties. The one that's that's been grieved, I guess, um, they they need to have forgiveness. I mean, they have forgiveness for their own for their own sanity, basically, for their own healing. They need to have forgiveness, and that forgiveness is not necessarily, yeah, I forgive you, come and do it to me again. It's more like like what Joseph said. He named his first one. I'm gonna forget. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it all behind me because I don't want this coming into my life and ruining my life. Now that doesn't have anything to do with the other person. I mean, they could still feel the same way. They could still want to do the same thing to that person, but it has to do with the victim. The victim says, "I don't want to have anything. I, I just don't want to remember it. I'm just gonna put it out, and I'm just gonna just not have it creep into my life now." And, and so that's on the part of the victim. Now, the person who perpetrates um, the act, then when they, they need to go through this transformation process. But I think maybe what you're saying is they're kind of two separate processes. You don't need the other person to repent before you can, I don't like to use the word forgive them, but before you can just move on with your life and just not have to um, be affected by the evils and then truly move on, not just like I'm going to bury this underneath so it's going to bubble up someday and eat my soul out for me. But it's like, it's like you truly forget, like Joseph, he's just, he's reveling in the fact that God took him so far and really did bless him from that really rocky beginning with his brothers and what they did to him, that he just was just going to put that aside. I mean, it's, it's, it's overridden by the beautiful things. There's so many, you know, people will will call in and, and, and ask for help. Like, what do I do? You know, I've had this bad, you know, my, my, I had a bad childhood. My mom abused me or my dad was a drunk or whatever. And it's like, you know, the best way to do that is to just, it, it's to just not have it be part of your life. Just, it's all gone. Just let it go and make something beautiful. Don't do that same thing with your children. Don't let that creep into your life and perpetuate its ugly self. You know, it's, and, and so I think, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if that's what you were saying or not, but I really do think there's, there's two sides to it. And the victim doesn't always have to wait for the other person to like ask for forgiveness or repent because they might not. They might be happy with what they did. So, but that doesn't mean it has to affect your life. I know it's easier said than done, and especially for people who have suffered really grievous things. But I think it's just a part of that necessary process where, you know, you really don't want to keep being a victim of something that happened. Mm -hmm. And that, and that for, forgetfulness is not a forgetfulness of memory. It's forgetfulness, like you said, of the of the evil that's done to you it's a removal of that power over your life it doesn't affect you it doesn't control you anymore. i think i think you put it you put it into perspective it's like it's like let's just say this thing this grievous thing happens to you you're abused or something and it's like it's like you have these big letters 
And then you, you know, you go on with your life and you do many things, you know, you graduate from high school or you graduate from college, you have a family, you have all these beautiful things and accomplishments happening in your life. And what happens is that, that abuse that you suffered as a child or in your past, all of a sudden that shrinks. It's like a tiny, teeny font. It's still there because it's still part of your memory, but it's, it's such a tiny little font that you can't even hardly see it. And the rest of the stuff just gets amplified. So, you know, yes, it's still there, but it's not taking up a major part of your life and your existence anymore. Moving a little on to the story, is there, what do you guys think about the actual actions Joseph takes to test his brothers? He's first putting silver in their sacks, holding them in prison, uh, demanding to see his other son, uh, putting this cup into the bowl of Benjamin, swapping them and so forth. Are these an excessive amounts of tests? Do you think Joseph, he spent again well over a year doing this, test after test after test, giving Benjamin extra amount of food, listening to them speak and so forth? Well, the reason why it was, it was time after time after time is because he sent them back with the food and they were holding out. They didn't want to come back to him because they knew if they came back to him without the brother, you know, that was going to be a problem. And they knew that their father wasn't going to release Benjamin because of what happened to Joseph. So, I mean, yeah, it kind of got dragged out. But I think I think given the, the offense and the time that had passed, I don't think it was unreasonable at all. I mean, he was trying to see if they had changed about what, how they felt about what they had did to, did to him. Did they still think, oh, that's such a cool idea, what we did. That was great. We got rid of him. Um, and then how how did they how were they relating to their father i think he wanted to see that and i think he wanted to see like julie mentioned how what they what they were doing with benjamin were they harboring the same jealousy were they treating him the same did they do the same thing to him i mean so so he he needed to scope all that out i mean and and what better way to do it you know for people that have lied and done all kinds of things to, to really just kind of hide behind the, the, the curtain, so to speak, because they didn't know that was their brother and, and just do all these things to really test them. I don't think it was unreasonable at all what he did. I mean, it sounds kind of dramatic, like, you know, putting him in prison and, you know, putting the, the grain in the sack and everything. <laughs> it was just a big drama, but I think he wanted, I mean, even just when they put the, the money back in Benjamin's sack, you know, were the brothers just going to send Benjamin back and say, Hey, well, sorry, boy. Sorry, bro. You know, unlucky you, but you know, they're like, no, we're all going back. We ain't leaving without our brother because we promised our father and, and just really testing him to that effect to see if they would repeat, you know? So it's, it's really that same thing again. Um, you know, are they going to repeat what they did? Would they repeat? And so. Judah's speech to Joseph has a, a lot of interesting things in it. You catch where he says, we have a father, an old man, 
a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And of course, then the good part for Judah's behalf, where he says, when, he, when Jacob sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. So your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. I told my father that if I did not bring the lad back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave and let the lad go up with his brothers. So Judah's definitely, besides, of course, he's still stating that Joseph is dead. He's still putting himself in place of Benjamin for punishment. He's still willing to exchange himself. Does this reveal definitely a change in Judah's spirit? Definitely a change in, do you see the father still has the favoritism? Has the favoritism been just transferred from Joseph to Benjamin? Or does this really just reveal more about the brother's character? Well, I think it reveals the fact that, <clears throat> that Jacob was still really protective of Benjamin, but it also shows that they weren't just willing to toss Benjamin under the bus either. They were going to look out for him. So that's yeah, I mean, how can you, I mean, what better way to actively show that you wouldn't do the same thing is when you're put in a situation where it's so easy to do the same thing. You know, it's like you almost have to work really hard to not have the same thing happen because they could have totally easily just said, okay, Benjamin, sorry. It, like, in other words, you're pushing them. It, it's like you're pushing them into the same thing. So it's so easy. You know, at first it was hard for them to get rid of Joseph. They're like, what do we, how are we going to do this? What are we going to do? And all the, you know, but now it's like really easy. All they have to do is just say, oh, wow, that was really bad of you to steal that money, Benjamin. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> you know, like it, I mean, it would have been so easy for them. But so they had to work at it to not have the same thing happen. And that to me is like the true, uh, that is the true test that they totally passed to that they were not going to repeat it. They were going to even work super hard to have it not happen again and even give up whatever they had to give up. I mean, even Reuben said, you know, recall that J Judah and Reuben were both the ones that didn't, that in, in essence almost saved Joseph's life. I mean, Simeon and Levi might have killed him, but they had all these other plans. And so they were kind of already being protective. But even when Reuben said, you know, if I, you know, kill my two sons if I don't come back. In other words, I will bring him back over my dead body, <laughs> basically. So both Reuben and Judah were definitely going to make sure that they protected their brothers. True, and, and you're right. If, if, if they still had the same resentment towards Benjamin that they had towards Joseph, how easy would that have been saying, no, ben, you could come back to the father and say, Benjamin stole. Benjamin stole that cup. Benjamin is guilty. He, they caught him. They, we tried everything we could to plead 
to release him, but they would not release him. And it would, you know, definitely would have been far easier for them to just to walk away. They would not do anything themselves. So that's definitely a good point. Wednesday's lesson points out that forgiveness is a, is a real choice, not an emotion. This gets back to what we were discussing earlier. But I just wanted to mention that aspect we talked about before, that reconciling and repairing broken relationships don't always happen. This is an excellent case where it does happen because it looked like Joseph is wanting to and working towards rebuilding this relationship with his brothers. What could he have done differently if he didn't want to reconcile with his family? Could he have simply given them grain, asked for news, let them go on their way, not said anything to them whatsoever? Could he have made a trip out on his own, taken the revenue of Egyptians out to visit his father and confront his father and surprise him? I know, I just see it's, it's really significant that he spends this effort to work with his brothers. He doesn't reject his brothers at all at this point. Well, again, I think, I think it's, you know, we could look at it in just our own narrow view of, oh, you know, this is just our life and these decisions we make and what would we have done and what could he have done. But I think Joseph really had a bigger picture. He, at that point in his life, you know, maybe if this happened early on, who knows what would have happened. But I think at this point in his life, he had this bigger picture. I mean, he was full on into this, you know, giving out the grain. He was saving all these people. They were all coming from all regions to him. He was the one that was, like, doling out the, the, the grain, basically. I mean, he had the keys. And, you know, this whole mission that God had put him on, I think he really felt... He, he felt that, okay, this is why I was sent you. This is why all this stuff happened. So I think he really, truly did forgive them in the sense that he didn't, it didn't matter that they had bad motives. God made something good out of it, which is God has the tendency to do. I mean, he's masterful at that. He's masterful at taking our mistakes or things that have happened that are bad and actually turning them into good. It doesn't mean that he had to have that bad thing happen for the good to happen, which a lot of people kind of go there when they say, well, you know, it's all for the best. So, you know, God had to have done that. No, he doesn't, he doesn't want bad things to happen to us, but he's a master at making good come from those bad things. And I think that Joseph really saw that. He, he saw that whatever his brothers did, God is so much stronger. And his mission, and at that point, his mission was, you know, to oversee this grain for the next seven years because there was going to be a lot more famine it was going to get a lot worse you know this was just the very tip of it and i think also he felt like anyone i mean he feels a you know a love and a responsibility toward his father to take care of his father i mean sometimes maybe you're nice to your siblings just out of respect for your parents and maybe you really don't respect your siblings, but you respect your parents and you know that they would have wanted you to, you know, treat each other well. So, I mean, 
I don't think that was the case in Joseph's sake. I really do feel like he forgave his brothers and wanted to have some kind of relationship. But, you know, it would never be, I don't think it would really be that good of a relationship. I think he was more interested in his father, maybe in Benjamin, and, you know, and just restoring the family peace, I guess. You know, he didn't want his brothers to feel like he's going to, you know, turn on them at any point in time. Because, I mean, we see later on, the brothers are still worried about it. They're, when the father dies, when Isaac, or when um, Jake, Jacob dies, then the brother's like, okay, now that our father's dead, now Joseph's going to turn on us and he's going to, but it doesn't happen because it is true that Joseph is not just treating them nice because the father, that he really did, you know, see the bigger picture. And when you see the bigger picture and you see what God's doing in your life, you don't need to hold all these little grudges. You don't need to revel in all the bad things that are, that have happened to you and, and rehash them and, you just don't need that. Let's look at Joseph's actual words. Bring up what you mentioned here, where he's talking to his brothers after he's revealed himself. He says in Genesis 45, 5, Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. And of course, these two years of heaven has been in the land. There's still five years in which there'll be either plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, and a ruler for all the land of Egypt. So it's very interesting, his phrase there. It was not you who sent me here, but God. So he's turning around this horrible situation and saying it's God that directed his footsteps, directed everyone's actions towards sending him to Egypt. Well, that's not the first time that he actually says to them, you know, don't worry. If you look in verse 24 of the same chapter, verse 45, chapter 45 it says so he sent his brothers away and they departed and he said to them see that you do not become troubled along the way so he was he was worried that they would have problems not true you know because all of this testing is joseph testing them but how much testing did they do of Joseph? He had to reassure them that he he had gotten over it. He had forgiven them, that it wasn't a problem. So, you know, he was giving them the information they needed as well. True. And, and again, we've mentioned a couple of times how in verse and chapter 50, this comes up again, where they don't trust Joseph. It's not really been reassured in their hearts. They have such a power differential. You've got the ruler of all of Egypt who can do anything that he wants. And they ask him yet again, please do not take revenge on us. And he reassures them yet again. 
So presumably, after the third time of reassurance, the, we can assume that the relationship was pretty much fully healed at this point. But it is still such a shame how, how long it takes, how difficult the road was that they had to go through in order to get that relationship restored. Any other insights here before we, before we close? I think it's a very interesting story and I think it really gives us a good example of how healing, even in really bad situations can happen. And, you know, it just, in my mind, it's always better to look out for family than to be an enemy. We've got enough enemies out there. We don't need to have our, our family, which should have our back, be our enemies. And um, I think that the story really highlights the fact that one way is better than another way. So if anyone had any doubts or questions about it, I, I'm hoping that this can kind of influence them to see that always better to take care of each other. I, I think it's really important to, to realize that just like in this case, um, I, I mean, maybe, maybe not in this case so much, but just the fact that God forgives us, he's forgiving us for this, the stored relationship. Um, you know, you would call it, you know, when we were studying about the covenant and he's, he talks about remembering their their sins no more. He's gonna they're all gonna be prophets. I forgot which um, which uh, I think it was Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. It says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And remember, that's in context of the covenant and how the new covenant, which is going to be a covenant that, that they're going to accept, that the people are going to accept this time, and, and they're going to allow God to write his laws in their hearts. Well, in order to have that covenant relationship, he has to forgive us and cleanse us. He has to get us to that bride quality because we're not bride quality. So he is the one that does it. He forgives us and he atones for our sins and he cleanses us and makes our, us white as, white as snow. And he forgives our iniquity and remembers our sin no more. So, And God is doing that for the restoration of this relationship. And I think it's important for us to realize that it's not because we're worthy of it. You know, like, oh, well, we repented, so now we're you know, of course he should forgive us because we repent it. No, he's doing it to restore this relationship and it all comes down to the relationship. So similarly to, to Joseph, and he didn't want to have this animosity between them. And just like, I mean, you could say the same thing with Jacob and Esau, that they wanted, you know, it's not maybe going to be the rosiest thing, but it's, it's a kind of a restoration of the relationship. And I think with God, it's just a whole nother level. It's a whole nother completeness. He wants that really intimate, close relationship with his people. And, you know, 
such a close relationship that it is like a marriage that you will think is one that that his laws will be on our hearts and so for that to happen he does have to or you know he he does go through this process of forgiving us and not remembering our sins anymore it's like it's gone it's off the books but it has nothing to do with us and i think that's what we need to always recognize like just like Joseph's brothers were probably they I think they they were always feel that they took it down to themselves in the grave. They knew Joseph forgave them, but I don't think they ever felt worthy of it. They didn't they they knew that that was an act coming from Joseph himself that he didn't have to do that, that they wouldn't have done it. You know, if the, if the roles were reversed, they probably wouldn't have done it. And so I think they probably took that down to their grave and I think they were hopefully they were thankful of it and realized what he had done for them but I think that's the same kind of attitude that we need to have when it comes to God that you know we're not worthy of it we're not worthy of this forgiveness he's doing it because he is who he is because God is who he is he's a loving God and he really does want us to have a close relationship well, you know, you bring up a really good point, Diane, because, you know, I never thought about it this way before, but think about it in the sense of God, you know, in the, in the new earth, you know, after the whole plan of salvation has played out, after, you know, God's earth is restored and everything, aren't we going to be forever grateful to God for forgiving us? We're going to realize that we sinned and hurt him so bad that we even, you know, killed his son. And all of the, the trials and the death and sorrow and suffering and everything that's happened on this planet for the last 6,000 plus years, we've been a part of, we've been responsible for. We're not going to just forget that, but we're going to be in the new earth, in God's kingdom, with the knowledge that that is our history but that God has forgiven us. And, you know, one of the things, I think it was in the lesson, I, I tried to get the lesson um, open on my tablet, but I, I, I was doing something wrong anyway. But it, it said something like, in order for true healing to take place, that forgiveness has to happen in our heart. Otherwise, we just continue to be a victim. You know, we just continue to have the, whatever perpetrated against us, a crime committed against us. And, you know, God's looking for the complete restoration, vindication, you know, fixing of the sin problem and the cleansing of the sin problem. But it doesn't mean that those things don't exist. It just means that we both have to understand the forgiveness of God and his character. And, and it's going to bring forth eternal gratitude in our hearts, I believe. It's interesting how in the great controversy's perspective, after all of this has even taken place, after God has healed us, after he's transformed our character, he does put his people through tests. He did take Abraham and called him to sacrifice Isaac. He did Make mention again, just if you search the Bible, you find references to how the Lord 
took the children of Israel 40 years in the wilderness after they rejected him to humble and test them, to know what was in their heart. There's all sorts of references to God testing his people to see if they would keep his commandments and to see if they will follow his laws. And I think it's such a beautiful thing, not that God is ignorant, not that he needs to have demonstrations, but that we need demonstrations. We need tests to see if we can trust someone. And he's testing us to show to the onlooking universe that look at these people. I, they've gone through so much. They've experienced so much. They've often made so many mistakes, but now they're better. I've healed them. I've restored them. And let me show you what they can do. And I think that's a great thing that we can do to think about how God wants to answer everyone's questions. Look at the people who have done horrible things and see how much they've changed, see how different they are. Just see the power of God affect and change people who are willing to be changed to become totally different people. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes he does that for our, for our sake, for human sake, because yeah. I think he can tell that we've changed and he can read our hearts, but sometimes we can't see that in each other. And he needs to show us that, yeah, look at, look at how Abraham has progressed in his life. Look at the faith he exhibited early on and, how, and the faith that he exhibited toward the end. And so I think, I think he does that as example so that we can look at our own lives and make sure that we're always progressing. You know, we're, we're always progressing in life. We're, we're building our faith. We're getting closer to God. I mean, I, it just marvels when I look at some of these 90 year olds and, and plus, and you know, it just seems like they just getting closer and closer. And I think that's what God wants. That's what time should do. It should just bring us closer and closer to God if we're if we're on that trajectory and building our strength more and more. So I think he doesn't necessarily need to test us, but we need to see that that progression in other people as, as encouragement for us and our lives. And not even just in other people. Take a look at the example of Peter when Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Three times. You know, I, I think that it's a realization for ourselves as well to really understand that we change. But yeah, you definitely see it in other people, but in the case of Peter, you can see how that's crucial even for our own transformation to realize that. Yeah. And like I said, we're going to be grateful for, to God for the salvation that he's given us for eternity. We're never going to stop being, you know, grateful for that. And, and part of that gratitude is realizing that same realization in each one of us that that is something that he cleansed us from that he restored he vindicated he fixed the problem he made it right exactly and of course the final message i think still is that to reestablish trust we need experience we need experience seeing this restoration of trust in others. We need to see this experience when we interact with God. 
And I think it's wonderful. There's times God asks us to test him. Yes, Gideon, yes. Many times when it's succeeded and failed to let him work, give him, let him do examples in our lives to show just how much he loves us and wants to interact with us and work with us. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we close? Good story. Lots of, lots of really deep thought points in there. Definitely. Someone say closing prayer? I can. Our loving Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful to you for this message, for the lessons that it teaches us, for the work and transformation that we realize and can identify in our own hearts because of the sin that we've committed against you and because of the hurt that we've committed against our brothers. I just pray, Lord, that you would guide us continue to, to set these messages home and teach us the lessons that, that are here for us. And again, Lord, we thank you for this moment that we have to just open up your word and to learn from you. We praise you and we just ask for your healing and your help um, in our hearts on both sides because we've all been victims and we've all been perpetrators as well. Help us, Lord, in the healing process and through that process to get to know you better, trust you more, to cling tighter and tighter to you. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.